0: What gets you a higher multiple? A lot of times it was growth. Uh, you know, we, we were uh, companies that were, for instance, competitors of GoDaddy that were growing faster with much less revenue, had a higher valuation than GoDaddy because of their growth. They had a higher multiple attributed to them. So if we are buying a business that, that has a higher growth rate, for instance, than, than we do at GoDaddy, we would pay more because that would hopefully translate into us as a company getting a higher multiple too. Hi there, and welcome back to another
1: edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm your executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we are inside the mind of an acquirer. Today, John Warlow sits down with Taraj Parang, who is one of the few individuals who has been on both sides of an acquisition. But before we get there, I would highly recommend that you head over to the episode page, which can be found over at builttosell.com. During today's conversation between John and Taraj, there's going to be a lot of technical terms used, and you'll probably find it very helpful to kind of look at some of those definitions as you follow along with today's conversation. Also there, I've added a link to Harun Maktazarda's episode. And as you're going to hear, Taraj actually led that process for Haroon in his first company, webs.com, which sold for over $115 million. So I will share that link along with all the definitions over the episode page, which can be found at builttosell.com. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about Taraj, who has a unique experience of not only building and selling his own company, Jaxter, and leading the acquisition process for Harun over at webs.com, but he also went to the other side of the table where he was the VP of Corporate Development over at GoDaddy and during his tenure there had acquired over 20 companies. Here to share his knowledge and story with John today is Taraj Parang. Enjoy.
2: Taraj Parang, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here for two reasons, many reasons, but two in particular. You have both built a company and sold it, and so I want to talk about Jaxter. You've been uh, a key member of the team to one of our other Built to Sell radio guests, one of our favorite episodes, one of our most downloaded episodes, uh, Haroon Muktazarda, who built webs.com and Truebill. And so you know Haroon, and that's how we got connected. So you can sort of get us inside uh, one of uh, you know another lens at one of our other former guests uh, exits, and then you also wore the hat of the acquirer. And we're going to kind of characterize this episode of, of as one of our uh, 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 acquirer series because you led uh, acquisitions for GoDaddy, and and evaluated a ton of aqu- uh, you know companies to acquire. We're involved in in, in more than ten of those. And so I'm just super happy that you've taken a few minutes to share uh, your expertise with our audience.
0: Yeah, super excited to be here.
2: Taraj, take me into Jackster. That story fascinates me. So for folks who don't know the business, explain what you did. And I got to ask you, on the back of your new book, Exit Path, on the back, it says, you learned the hard way from selling a company for quote pennies on the dollar. And it got me really curious about, all right, what was the mistake uh, that uh, you made with Jaxer? So tell that story.
0: Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, Jaxer was a phenomenal experience uh, and uh, it was my first startup. So as a first time entrepreneur, I was just learning on the job. And uh, we were lucky to have a lot of traction initially. Um, what did the company was- do? Yeah, so let's um, perhaps maybe I should talk about when it started, which is in 2005. This is the prehistoric, pre iPhone era where um, we still had phones that did not have apps on them, right? And what one trend we noticed was that people love to talk on their phones and more and more text on their phones, but the cost of calling and texting was Tremendous. Uh, you would have to actually pay per text message, you would send. I remember those and days. And kids couldn't call back home because long distance calls, would uh, they would go broke doing that. Um, at the same time, the social media platforms were getting traction. So the platforms at the time were MySpace and Friendster names that some of your listeners may not remember anymore because uh, uh, they, they don't exist in, in, in the way they did back then. Uh, Facebook kind of was just getting started. And what we realized is that this, this social experience and the telephony experience was disjointed. So our aha moment was, hey, can we bring these two together? and create uh, a way for people while they're on a social platform to send text messages to someone's phone or even call them and talk to them. Uh, So that was the initial idea, so 2005. And we just put it out there and communication is inherently viral it's because you can't just uh, talk to yourself; you need somebody else to come in and talk to you. So, yeah, there's a
2: network that, effect there for sure. Exactly.
0: So it just grew; it um, it, it grew beyond our wildest imagination. We went from like zero to one million users in the first month to ten million mm-hmm. users in the first year, and uh, you know you can imagine just like for first time entrepreneur, this massive growth, and we were able to on the heel of that growth acquire a lot of. Great top tier venture capital investors. So we were just grow, grow, grow was kind of our mantra. And we were so confident that we had this figured out that um, we really didn't pay much attention to building an ecosystem of strategic partnerships around us. We were uh, just kind of like saying, look, we're going to be a billion dollar company, we're going for that IPO. And we're just going to be heads down focusing on what we do best, which is viral growth. And, um, uh, you know, that turned out to be a mistake. Why? Because we hit 2008-2009 downturn. We needed to raise more money to keep this growth engine humming. And uh, no, no, no more investors were willing to foot the bill. Uh, sort of similar to what we're experiencing today with a lot of venture capital firms that are Kind of reevaluating their strategy. And instead of funding growth, they are now funding businesses that have profitability or a path to profitability. Everyone that we talked to wanted to see, oh, show me the money, right? And we were so focused on growth, we thought that once we have this massive user base, we can then monetize and we can worry about monetization later. Let's just acquire the customers.
2: And so what did you do when when the VC money dried up? You were burning cash, presumably you wouldn't need to raise. What did you do?
0: Well, (laughs) it was a bit of a shock. Uh, So the first thing we did was uh, let's make the cash last as long as possible. So we did a round of layoffs, actually a couple of rounds of layoffs. It was painful um, because we had really Prouded ourselves on bringing on board the top, the best engineers, the best people we could find. So just every, every person that we let go was just such a um, disappointment and such a loss for us. Um, but we had to do that to make sure the company can survive. But even despite of that, we didn't have even a year of runway. The other problem was that we had raised venture debt which is kind of a money that you get from a bank side by side when you raise venture capital money. And the venture debt was sort of, in our mind, kind of rainy day funds, something that would give us uh, more runway um, than the venture money would provide so that if we need to raise money a little later, we could do it. So we had raised $5 million in venture debt. What happened, though... Um, when we went back to our board and said, hey, this is the situation, this is how much runway we have, they kind of looked at us funny and said, well, you know, you're counting the venture debt in your runway, but you shouldn't. And we were just like, whoa, wait, <laughs> say what? And the reason they said that was that, look, unless you have a clear path to paying back that venture debt, in our fiduciary obligation, um, the board said we can't actually authorize you to dip into that we you have to pay back the venture debt so that's when we realized we had less than even six months of runway so kind of panic set in of course uh but we tried to be good sports about it and we said okay no problem let's let us now go work our contacts and see if we can actually sell the company uh, again first-time entrepreneurs very naive uh and uh now that I know, after many years of having sold and bought companies, it takes a very long time to sell a, sell a company um, and six months is just not nearly enough um, from the time you start the process so yeah we we basically were in a in a place that at the end we had to basically sell to the first Person who expressed interest, which turned out someone who was interested in our user base only, not really our team, not really our technology to that extent, and so and they they could dictate their price because we had no other alternative, and so uh, the comment you made, pennies on the dollar, is appropriate because really we actually didn't get the pennies even; so it was equity in that private company that we got, and um, that didn't turn out to. anything material at the end
2: that private company went bankrupt and went to zero it's
0: still existing it's still existing and this this has happened in 2009 but i don't see a path where that that private company would return anything meaningful back to the shareholders or to employees
2: what was what were the venture capitalists that your your board which was made up presumably of investors like the vc investors and yes what was their uh, reaction to the idea of selling for effectively pennies on the dollar
0: get, taking equity in this cut like were they on board or well they, I, again, unfortunately, <laughs> beggars can't be choosers right so we had no we had no op, other alternative no other viable alternative. Now we worked really hard to figure out the monetization. But it takes time to tweak those funnels, to create the user experience. When you're focused on growth and you change, try to change the DNA of your product from growth to monetization, it takes time. We just didn't have time. Uh,
2: let's just get a um, a definition out of the way. I don't know the term venture debt. I've heard of venture capital, but I don't know venture debt and how it's different than regular
0: debt you get from a bank so explain if you could uh, yeah so regular banks when uh, even the reason venture capital industry exists is that bank financing is traditionally not available for businesses that are not immediately cash flow positive or immediately generating significant revenue um, because banks you know they make small interest rate and it's they true. can't afford to take risks. So venture give capital- you
2: When it's raining and take it away when it's- right. what, No, they give you when it's sunny and take it away when it's raining. So how is venture debt
0: different than regular so, debt? So venture debt is like the debt counterpart to venture capital. So venture capitalists invest um, and they get a- basically part of your company. They share in the upside with you and they have a portfolio strategy. They know that most startups don't make it, but the few that do like uh, Harun's startups um, make up for those that don't make it, right? So venture debt has a similar mindset. They realize that if they come and provide debt financing to you to select startups that have good venture capital backing, their chances are higher that they would uh, recoup uh, their not only their money and the interest rate, but they also get a little bit piece piece of equity in your company. So uh, okay. um, they, they call the warrant. They they take much less equity than venture capitalists do, uh, but they still share in the upside to some extent. And
2: how how is the interest rate relative to a, a standard bank? It's debt? similar. Okay. Yeah. So the deal is it's a little riskier. We're going to give you some debt, but. In return, we're going to get some warrants in addition to to cover us for the additional exposure. But they sit higher in the capital structure than the equity.
0: They are, um, yeah. They're still debt right. holders. They're,
2: they're yes. the first to get paid back. That's helpful. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, it it occurs to me that there are a lot of people listening uh, to this that find themselves in exactly the same spot you found yourself in in two thousand nine. They've they've been you know, focused on top line revenue growth uh, under the, you know, the understanding that that's what's going to drive the value of their company. That's what their investors are looking for. And all of a sudden they run into a brick wall, uh, meaning kind of spring 2022 and VC money has dried up. It's, I mean, you know, private capital markets, I don't know if you're, you know, have the same view, but my sense is that they're all but Basically locked up at this point, only funding the most profitable, surefire businesses, and you know the the classic model has sort of gone away for the summer. So, what advice would you give an entrepreneur who finds themselves in that spot right now?
0: Yeah, it's it's taken a summer. The, the ca- venture capitalists are taking a prolonged summer break. Yes. Um, what the advice is well. I hope a lot of entrepreneurs are not in this situation that we were with Jaxer that they have actually cultivated some relationships and have like an ecosystem of allies and strategic partners and others that they don't have to do a cold start with them if they are interested in selling, at least exploring the option to sell their business. so that that's my hope, and that's why I actually wrote the book Exit Path because I want more and more startups to and entrepreneurs to do that ahead of time when the times are good, <laughs> uh, because once once uh, you hit a downturn like this and you no know, one could have predicted it, it's too late. So um, the other advice I would have for them is that you know just cast as wide a net as possible. Um, look at all your options. Of course, you have to see if you can still create a sustainable business that can last um, but look at you know alternative financing customer financing perhaps accelerating some of your revenues tweak your business model and maybe you can collect more money if you're a subscription business you can have, shift more folks to annual plans rather than monthly plans it, it really depends on the business but see, what are the ways that you can extend that runway? My hope is that this kind of uh, downturn will actually turn around faster than the previous ones. I think if you look at the trend over time, the business cycles are uh, faster but they're also more uh, pronounced right um so the highs and lows are uh, more steep perhaps that's because of uh, some of the automation that's inherent in the capital markets yeah but- i
2: wonder if that's also happening in the capital markets and again i, I don't know the answer to some 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 capital markets person could tell me, but I feel like the capital markets just with the, the frequency of trading, the digitization of trading, it's become much, much steeper ups and downs. Like I remember a movement in the Dow Jones of two or 300 points was a big day one way or t'other. And now we're seeing six, seven, 800. Now I know the Dow is on a bigger volume number. So maybe on a percentage basis it's not, but my sense is like private company or you know economic movements these private or public company stocks are also moving. Oh yeah, in you, you
0: could have a stock, and literally in my portfolio, I see stocks that are going down twenty percent one day and coming up more than twenty percent the next day. So it's right. it's it's crazy out there. So the, that volatility scares a lot of investors. Now, the um, the later stage of an investor you are, the more sensitive uh, and uh, cautious you are right now. So some of those. Big funds uh, that had invested in massive pre-IPO rounds right now are not doing that anymore because the IPO market is pretty much shut down uh, for for many of the startups. Um, But the the more early stage funds, um, so seed stage, series A, they're a little bit more insulated because they have a longer time horizon to recoup their investment. So they're not as um, worried about today's stock market.
2: Yeah. 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 I want to move to, uh, webs.com because that's another obviously incredibly important part of your, uh, you know, profile, as well as your learning and, and about the space and your credibility in space. And, and I'm going to r- encourage everybody again, if you have not listened to Haroon's episode of built to sell radio, um, it's such a great episode because he's had two wonderful exits, but there were learning in both. Uh, he sold Webs.com for more than a hundred million dollars with Taraj's help, and he also, uh, more recently, sold Truebill for more than a billion dollars. And and Harun in the episode credited Utaraj with really leading the charge on the Webs.com sale, being the being the the individual that made it happen and, and made that all possible. Um, so you should know that and 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 he is very very positive about the work you did i you know one of the things haroon talked about in the webs.com example is he started of course back in 2001 and early took some vc money and and had a 3x liquidity preference the vc had a 3x liquidity preference and i'm wondering you joined it i think 2009 yes And I'm wondering what your reaction was when you learned about the 3x liquidity preference.
0: (laughs) Yes. First of all, I want to say Harun is such an incredible leader. Smart guy. uh, Him and his brothers, uh, they are just uniquely talented, humble. I mean, I couldn't say enough great things about them. It was just such a pleasure to work with him. Um, And a lot of credit goes to him and his team, of course. Uh, But it's just his personality that he's so generous with his uh, compliments and uh, kind of giving credit. Um, And also uh, uh, the the thing about Harun is that he's such an amazing storyteller. (laughs) So, I I want to double emphasize your comment about listening to that episode because I was hooked. I was like trying to, okay, so what happens next? (laughs) Uh, And I was there, I lived it, but I still wanted to hear it from him. So yes, a hundred percent. Now, the three execution principles, when I looked at Harun, looked at the business he had built, he had like more than 20 million websites when I joined him on his platform Um, and he was monetizing. Uh, So it was kind of like, it it was where I had left my last company where I wish it was there with with the monetization piece. So he had figured out that piece that I was missing in the last company. And now he was looking at a way to kind of break out. And uh, the liquidation preference for me was irrelevant because I knew we could make a massive, build a massive business here because of what I saw with our user data, with the monetization funnels. And uh, also the team. I just fell in love with him and his brothers and the founding team, the leadership team, the culture of the company. Everything just made so much sense. For me, liquidation preference was, uh, was irrelevant. And what I did actually in my deal with him was that I, I set a pretty high bar and said, look, you give me this much equity. If I can increase the value of the company from where we are today to like more than 5x of that. and uh, and." that happened. So luckily for me <laughs> and uh, everyone involved. So uh, it was a group effort. And what I, one of the first things I did was I don't want to repeat the same mistake I made at Jackster here. So literally within the first couple of months of me joining, we had a strategy offsite and I sat everyone down and said, hey, look, let's define success for ourselves here and let's figure out... If we ever need to sell, who would be our ideal acquirers and what would they find appealing about us and what do we find appealing about them? Let's, let's put all this on paper. Let's draw it out. And we had a very nice brainstorming session. And,
1: and as a weird. result
0: of that, we came up with our wish list. Yeah,
2: and and Harun talked about that offsite that you led actually, yes. and that's where you identified companies like GoDaddy and and uh, and Intuit, Intuit. And, and some of the other small print. business providers. Yeah, and and I think what Harun described was that enabled you to start visualizing. Okay, if this is the acquirer set. What are they going to value? What are the sort of value drivers that we should emphasize that they will find most attractive?
0: Uh, absolutely. So and what we realized that pretty much everyone that was on our acquire list they were very much focused on small businesses webs at the time was not a small business platform it was a platform for anyone to build a website and mostly so, prosumers right like yes. people with passions and hobbies yeah. and hobbies anyone and like
2: right yeah. Yeah.
0: exactly or you could just have a photo album even hosted on webs but sure. but we decided that um, if we really wanted to uh, to go after success we needed to become a platform for small businesses. And so we changed a lot. We changed our branding a little bit, our funnels, we, we changed which uh, templates we, we surface, as well as we realized that to be a small business platform, you need to have, be on mobile, you need to be on social, you need to have a CRM tool. and. I got busy creating strategic relationships, partnerships, and sometimes acquisition. We acquired a couple of companies to fill in those holes for us. Um, so when we were talking to uh, the strategic partners slash potential acquirers on our list, we had a solution that they needed.
2: Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And to my listeners who may not know the term 3x liquidity preference or or haven't had a chance to listen to the Haroon episode, what I'm what I'm referencing there is a conversation that I had with Haroon where uh he took VC money, venture capital money uh with the conditions that the venture capitalists would would get three times back their money before the others uh, investors, the other stockholders were entitled to anything. And that's called the liquidity preference. And in this case, the three X means three times more. And when I asked Haroon about it, you know, you, you may recall from listening to the episode Taraj, he's like, yeah, I would never take in VC money for this business. Had I known about that? And, and he didn't, I think and he shared in the, in the episode, he didn't even know the three X liquidity preference was there until he started to get fairly down the road with GoDaddy and and discovered it sort of towards the end of the sales, which right. was a pretty shocking moment.
0: <laughs> right, right. With VistaPrint, yes, uh, yes. They they, they Sorry, we ultimately did, sold uh, to VistaPrint. Was, we we did have other uh, potential acquirers. Um, uh, we were lucky enough to have that and we had cultivated, basically, those relationships to get there. And that's what kind of gave us also the the leverage to push the price up. And to board's yeah. credit, I think uh, they, they really helped in that process. They had some of the back channels from our board members to their board members. So. Um, you know, had he not taken that money, I mean, it's always hard to just to, to kind of have these hypotheticals as to what would happen if, had he not taken that, it could have been that our exit would not have been as high either. So. Or they would have grown much
2: more slowly, et cetera. Yes. Yeah. 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 Let's move to GoDaddy because you led acquisitions for GoDaddy from 2014 to 2021. During that time, you were involved in more than 10 acquisitions and probably hundreds of potential acquisitions that you looked at or even thousands. Yes. I'd love to start where we just left off. When we talk to business owners we're, uh, you know, on this show and a lot of the guests, one of the kind of core tenants of punching above your weight as a seller is to get multiple offers, right? So in your case it at web.com you had Vistaprint you had you know a, a, a whole group of of companies that you were talking to and that of course hardens the deal terms gets a better price and and that's great when you were wearing your GoDaddy hat what was your reaction to learn that a company was being shopped to your competitors
0: right yes so and this, this also hinges on the level of relationship you have with those entrepreneurs. And, and this is what I emphasize also in my book is that this human dimension, the relationship dimension is so critical in MA. and And that's something I didn't realize until I was more on the acquirer side. This is one of the biggest lessons learned for me was how important it is to Build those relationships early. Now, if, if my first interaction with an entrepreneur or our, our company's leadership's interaction with an entrepreneur, the first one is, hey, we're in an auction process. Do you guys want to participate? It just kind of leaves a bad taste. Uh, it's, um, you know, acquirers have feelings too. <laughs> Why didn't we know about you guys beforehand, right? Uh, are, we, are we just here to prop up your valuation with others because – Obviously, if we were important enough to you as a strategic acquirer, you would have built that relationship with us. So that this is kind of the mindset of an acquirer. Now, if an asset is highly strategic, highly critical, existential, from a competitive perspective, various reasons, right? We, we could still throw our hat in. We wouldn't be um, so emotionally hurt that we would just say, forget it. Uh, we would still have a business logic and look at it, but the bar would be very high. Uh, You know, it would have to be really something quite uh, important to us to to engage. Now, the bar would be lower if we had already had a relationship with that company or entrepreneur. Maybe we had connective tissues with them. Maybe they are already integrated into our product suites. Maybe we are doing co-marketing with them could be different different ways that we have known them over the years and then they enter into a competitive a lot of times they get an inbound interest um then we would be much more eager to engage uh, again the the business logic has to be there um but um the bar i would say is lower because we we have confidence we know these uh that our counterparts um what i Observed in doing those uh, many acquisitions at GoDaddy, and our team did over 20, uh, actually over 30, probably um, uh, in my tenure, seven year tenure there. um, Is that on average, we had known the target for over a year. So, um, and the deal itself takes, you know, at least four to six months, as you know, from term sheet negotiations to closing. Um, So, uh, it's, it's a, it's a long term kind of relationship building exercise that entrepreneurs need to engage in um, before they bring up the subject of a competitive uh, dynamic in, a, in an acquisition. Ideally, you want the acquire like you want your ta- most desirable acquirers to actually be the first ones that, that come after you. That's an ideal situation.
2: Yeah. So what I'm hearing you say, I think it's very sage advice, is build a relationship up and down the organization on your list of potential acquirers so that there is some, again, to use your term, connective tissue. One of the questions I think our listeners might have at that is who should they target? Because as the owner of their company, their inclination is likely to say, well, I want to yeah, I want to talk to the owner, right? I want to talk to the, the 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 CEO of GoDaddy as an example. That's one sort of strategy, which is which may not sort of, unless you're a very large company, may not sort of render much results. Another approach is to find out who's heading up corporate development or business development and reach out to someone there. But that's sort of tipping your hand a little bit that if you reach out to corporate development, I would have thought that perhaps there is a uh you know a veiled sort of Uh, intent that you want to sell. And then a third strategy is to look at, you know, someone in the business, a marketing person, a product person, and try to form some sort of lower level partnership. We actually, an old interview, uh, I did with a woman named Stephanie Breedlove goes back a couple of years, um, Uh, she actually had a very simple marketing co-partnership where she was, you know, sharing content. And so she's the, the owner of the business and her relationships with like a marketing coordinator or marketing manager, like very, you know, very sort of uh, on the bottom of the hierarchy, if you will. But she sort of daisy chained that relationship up to eventually get to the CEO. Um, So what advice would you have uh, you know, for someone who's looking at, at a company like GoDaddy or some other yeah. equally large behemoth and saying, who do I start
0: with? Yeah, so the, the beauty of starting early, which is like what I'm evangelizing in my book is that you don't have to make that choice. You can actually ping all of them, right? Ping the CEO, ping the corporate dev and biz dev teams, being the uh, kind of uh, GM or product manager who you think is closest to the area of overlap with what you're doing and and see what lands and what sticks and kind of keep a regular rhythm and cadence of staying in touch with them because you're not in a rush to sell, hopefully. Um, You can actually sort of mention that and mention to them, look, I'm just here to build relationship." I'm here to establish a, a communication channel and uh, perhaps share some learnings. I have seen, for instance, that in this target customer base, X, Y, and Z, or our customers tend to be X, Y, and Z. So you can actually start offering insights, offering knowledge to this potential acquirer to, to get, use, that, use that as a hook to establish that relationship. And relationships don't have to mean that you guys have to go to dinner every week. It it does mean that you stay top of mind for them. They are aware that you exist. Um, Can you think of an example from your past
2: of an entrepreneur who did this well, who, who forged a relationship with you without undermining their negotiating leverage without sort of coming to you hat in hand and saying, Taraj, please buy my business. I really want you to buy my business. They, they kind of maintained their, um, their, their negotiating leverage, yet still forged a relationship with you.
0: Yes. I think, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that corporate development teams, for the most part, act like cupids. So their job is actually to kind of connect the principles. They are not decision makers themselves. Their job is facilitate relationships. This from my experience, that's how I saw. In fact, my social handle for a while was I, I, in my social handle, I would describe myself as a corporate Cupid because all I would do is like provide the ideal conditions for our business uh, owners and potential startups to meet and sort of see if there is a there there. Um, and it doesn't have to be near term. Now, um, if you approach a corporate development person or a business, and you can say, "Look, I'm looking to connect with someone in X and Y or Z department, and this is the uh, my objective is to establish a relationship, to do some, to share learnings, and see if there is a partnership to be had, near term or long term." That that's very non-threatening. It is. It comes across so much easier. Then if you come and say, hey, you know, my business is uh, uh, getting approached by acquirers. I'm wondering if you guys are interested. That just turns any corporate development person off so fast. Um, so uh, the more non-threatening, and I talk about this a lot more in, in my book as well, but the more non-threatening and collaborative you are, the, the, the higher the likelihood that you will actually get a response. And you'll actually get results from that. Um.
2: Some people listening to this, Taraj, though, are saying, "Yeah, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get tricked. I'm gonna get somehow lured into some proprietary deal where I give up a little too much information about my secret sauce." And they're either going to use that to compete with me, or they're going to use that to to have one over on me in the negotiation, um, you know, approach. What would you say to someone who's saying, "I don't want to get into bed with some corporate, you know, team because uh, I'll give away too much of my my information, my confidential stuff."
0: Yeah. So th- th- you know, you you have to, of course, safeguard your confidential information, but I don't think it's ever it's necessary to divulge what's under the hood to at least have build and start those initial relationships. Now, if if things actually progress and you get to a point where someone is seriously looking at you to acquire you, then they will probably ask for some of those information. And then there's a fine dance to play there between, okay, what can I... Comfortably show you to give you confidence uh, to put an offer on the table, and then what happens after the offer is on the table. So that, as you know, the diligence process—you know—you have a preliminary diligence, then you have term sheet, then you have confirmatory diligence to make sure that what you believed upon which you provided the term sheet or the uh, the offer to a business actually is true. Um, so it behooves you uh, to provide enough correct information that a potential strategic partner acquirer could base their decisions on, and that on, upon further scrutiny, uh, the deal doesn't fall apart. The last thing you want is to trick someone into thinking that you are some something that you are not. They get excited, they, they come to the table with a very compelling offer, and then once they look under the hood, they realize that's really not what you are or where your company is at, and then they pull back. That the fallout from its process like that can be really disastrous uh, for any startup, any any business. You can see with Twitter and Elon Musk what, what, what the kind of mess that they're in when Elon kind of stepped back. And uh, you know, you know, it's 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 uh, it's bad for morale. It can tell lawsuits. It can be very distracting to be go through an acquisition process and have it fall apart because you weren't true truthful upfront uh, is it can set your company back many, many years.
2: This may sound like a weird question, but how is a corporate development executive compensated? I don't need to know your salary, but I would love to know what drives your performance-based compensation. Because I'm asking this question because I think it would help the entrepreneurs who are approaching corporate development executives to know what drives that person's variable compensation is it getting a deal done is it getting the right deal done is it uh, like what is the what is the variable comp component tied to
0: yeah and and in fact it, and i'm talking about from a public company perspective in a yeah. public company the more senior you are actually the more of your compensation is tied to the stock performance and the the financials of the overall business. So what you are trying to do is create long-term shareholder value because that translates into better stock performance. Uh, So as a corp dev executive or business development executive, you're not a salesperson. You don't have like a monthly quota that you're trying to hit or a weekly quota. You're really thinking long-term and trying to say, think, what does uh, the market value about this company and how can I grow that? Now, for GoDaddy, that was different things at different times. At some point, it was revenue growth. Uh, I'm sure now it's a lot more about uh, free cash flow and profitability. (laughs) Profitability growth. Yes, right. Um, uh, It can be about increasing your ARPU, Average Revenue Per User, which is, um, you know, with GoDaddy, we're in this unique position where we were acquiring customers, small businesses at the inception of the idea, right? You have an idea and you want to get a domain name and you think immediately of GoDaddy, and that's as a result of hundreds of millions of brand investment over over more than a decade. And uh, and that those businesses that they come to GoDaddy with an idea may not necessarily then stay with GoDaddy as their business grows, so our our job was, hey, can we retain these uh, the the share of wallet as these businesses grow and increase that share of wallet um, go ahead
2: but I'd love to know i mean i would I would love to get inside your head for a moment you were you were there for seven years yes did like if my comp is 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 tied to stock performance, and it, and GoDaddy's a publicly traded company, right? So you can see the stock go up and down. Um, total market capitalization of the stock, roughly, like what? How? Like what would the total market cap of GoDaddy
0: be these days? Oh well, uh, you know, it hovers between you know ten billion to you know fifteen billion dollars. Okay, so it's a big big mother
2: of a company, 10 to $15 billion market cap company. And I guess my point is if I'm, if I'm corporate development and my variable comp is tied to the movement of the stock price, I'm going to look for big deals. Like I don't want to buy some piddly little company. That's not going to move the needle because it's quote a strategic fit. I'm going to make, make deals that are going to move the stock price. And so Ten or fifteen billion dollars of market capitalization. Like I gotta buy decent-sized companies. I can't buy the the five hundred thousand dollar business or the one million dollar business, even if it's a great fit, because it's just not gonna do anything for my stock price. Am I, it, like, I'm I'm a I'm I'm being overly argumentative to make my point. But do you th- do you think corporate development people think that way? Like, if I wanna do a deal, it's gotta be of a certain size, or it's just not worth my time.
0: Um, At a a large, basically big company strategic level, that makes absolute total sense. Uh, You you want to do the most impactful things first. However, when you come down to an individual business unit, who are basically the the partners, the folks you're supporting in your role as a corp dev executive or biz dev executive, they may have much more... uh, micro needs rather than a macro need. So they may have much more tangible objectives that they need to. Let's say they may need a a small product that fills in a very important gap for them to accelerate um, their go-to-market, accelerate their revenue generation. So you still build that business case and you still want to see how this influences everything else. But sometimes you may need to do an echo hire. Like you buy a team of three people (laughs) because that is so mission critical to that to a certain business.
2: And but, are you aligned with a certain business unit right. as a corporate development person? Yes, you need to be aligned to a certain business unit. I mean, yes, so again, know the,
0: I can talk for every company, but for good, Addy, uh, what we were uh, basically we were a matrix organization, and we had several businesses that each one of us would uh, would be responsible for supporting.
2: Got it, and so you would get to know the general managers and the senior executives of each of those divisions, and they would say, Taraj, what we really need is, you know, such and such a company or something that can help us do X project, or, and and that would help inform the way you thought about strategic acquisitions for your business unit leader. Exactly. So basically, and what's the di- sorry, Taraj, what's the dynamic of power there? Like, if if you've got a General manager of a of a business unit generating I don't know like a billion dollars of revenue. Let's just say is is that like who's the boss of who? <laughs> do you know what I'm getting at? Like yeah. how much influence do you have as a corporate development and saying like your strategy should be X versus them telling you no no Taraj our strategy is X. I need you to go find me some companies. You're almost like a client of them. Help me understand the dynamic. So we are
0: a support function, the same way you you would think accounting would be a support function or legal would be a support function. So corporate development is a strategic support function. So what we do is we provide that general manager with uh, options, with uh, uh, calculations of what different strategic paths would entail if, um, with business models uh, of various things. So what, what we do really is create a build-by-partner plan. Let's say they want to grow in a certain area. Well, do you do it by building it, um, uh, which is what the default mode is for most businesses? Sure.
2: Organic or growth, do you partner? Out,
0: yeah. Do you find strategic partners that can come in and accelerate your, your uh, movement in that area? Or do you acquire someone that kind of leapfrogs basically Uh, even uh, if something is a lot more strategic, you want to basically uh, acquire, if you can, uh, if there is a target that meets your criteria, not always exists such a target. So you kind of default to building or partnering.
2: And who owns the funnel? So uh, I'm thinking of like a kind of a sales and marketing funnel. Um, Does the, the division president is is part of their job identifying potential partners and acquisition candidates that they kick to you to say taraj can you take a look at these guys and see if they're worth exploring or is it work the opposite way do you it's both. Yeah. okay yeah so so
0: it's yeah. both okay. it's, it's collaborative you know um, in my experience when it comes from the business unit itself the chances of something happening is higher than if it's coming from the the corp dev or biz dev teams, um, uh, because again, when a corp dev and business team brings something, they can't really force it through. Who holds the resources to actually uh, bring that company in, to integrate it, to actually stand behind their performance uh, and the deal rationale, is the GM is the is a product manager in charge of that product? So when they advocate for something, it, it's it's a lot stronger, and more resources get unlocked to make a deal happen. And
2: that's I, interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so I think I know the answer to this question only by the virtue of your previous answer. But I'd love to just validate this: when a a, a large enterprise company like a GoDaddy or any large enterprise company for that matter, and they're going to make a material acquisition, uh, that acquisition would be approved by the board, most likely.
0: It depends on the size. Yes. Uh, if, a, if, if it's, it's large enough, like a, it requires yeah. board. If it's even larger than that, it requires a shareholder approval.
2: Got it. Okay. So, so most of the, the businesses that I think listen to the owners that listen to this podcast would be in a situation where the business unit leader would likely have to make a presentation to either the CEO or the board or both to get approval to go ahead with it. Um, Take me inside that boardroom discussion. You've been there in the boardroom. You've heard the pitches. What do they say?
0: Yes. Well, they, they want a pretty much airtight rationale for why both cash as well as attention resources (laughs) are going to be, uh, given to this strategic direction, this acquisition. Again, if it's small, if it's like an acqui-hire, if you're hiring a team or like a small product, it doesn't even rise to the board level. It may not even rise to the CEO level. It may be just a CFO, basically it under their discretionary budget or whatnot, they would have it. How big it. would a
2: deal have to be at GoDaddy for it to sort of get to the more like the, the, yeah,
0: the board? I, I would say, you know, when I started Go that it was a private company, and then we went through the IPO. When we were private, like right before IPO, I would say if a deal was even uh, ten million dollars or more, it would it would the board uh, would want to take a look at it. And and the board there were private equity investors, so they're Mm. they're very deal savvy. So they really wanted to make sure we do the right things in preparation for the IPO. Uh, Have have that. Big IPO uh, that we were all everybody was hoping for. Now post IPO, um, you know the bar sets higher is higher, so I would say anything that's above you know fifty to a hundred million then would would again get get board level visibility. Below that, the CEO would basically have to um, have to make a call. Got it.
2: And what sorts of objections would a general manager of a business unit, have to address when pitching an acquisition to the CEO. What would be the sort of list of two or three objections the CEO is likely to you know to
0: make? Well, um a lot of times it's like uh, you know it's like you don't want to be like the dog that catches the ice cream truck, right? So you want to make sure you have a plan that implements this acquisition and makes it successful. I've never heard that. What does that
2: mean? The dog that catches the ice cream? What is what that? It's like, oh, what do me? I do
0: now? Like I caught the ice cream track. Now what do I do? Got it. Okay. okay. Um, so um, uh, sometimes, you know, especially perhaps with less experienced acquirers, um, those that don't necessarily have an integration team, uh, you know, deal Fever sets in, people get excited, competitive dynamics come about, and they're like, okay, well, we're getting this company without having given much thought as to, okay, day one after the acquisition, what's going to happen? You know, where are all these people going to be reporting to? Um, How are the platforms going to get integrated? Which resources in the company are going to be dedicated to making that work? Because they're not working on something else when they're working on the integration. So can we defer that something else in order to do this? So um, that's where like a good corp dev slash integration team really earns their keep because they make sure not to just make the deal happen, but that the deal gets implemented successfully and that the value that the acquirer is hoping to extract from that deal actually comes to materialize.
2: So the CEO sitting there saying, This is great, Taraj, I get why you want to, you know, buy this business, but what are we going to do to integrate it? And what's the you know, the disruptions that are gonna what like what disruptions are gonna yeah. happen, what knock on effects
0: And the organizational implications. You know, do we have to redo our yeah. org charts to be um- what
2: evaluation? Like who is the one that that comes up with the offer?
0: The corp dev team is, is very much in the driver's seat here as to making a recommendation as to what the valuation should be. And you don't just throw a number out there. You, you provide the support for what's, why this valuation or valuation range makes sense. What would you
2: use as, as support um,
0: points so, there are multiple, basically, anchor points. Uh, one is, of course, you look at, as a public company, you look at how the market is valuing you, what are the multiples that the market is attributing to you, and um, that sort of provides a guideline. It doesn't necessarily mean that you you then dem- automatically give that multiple to the company you're acquiring, because there's a lot of variables that goes into what makes up that, a multiple you're getting in the public market. Does
2: that provide a ceiling though? I mean, I did a built to sell radio episode with an acquirer, another one of these acquire series and Tony, um, forgive me. I've forgotten his last name, but folks could Google it. Um, he said, and he—he's a much his 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 company was much smaller, maybe sixty million in market capitalization, but it was a small publicly traded company in New Zealand. And he said, I think at the time they were trading around twelve times EBITDA. And he said, like that's the ceiling. We would never do a deal that's not accretive. So that, you're saying it provides me- a benchmark, but not necessarily. Oh yeah,
0: I mean to put that as a ceiling is so short-sighted. That means that you you you're never going to break out of that. I mean if you. Yeah actually really truly follow that logic, that means your company will never be valued higher than that because you are rejecting every opportunity that could uh, provide you with a higher multiple. Now, what gets you a higher multiple? A lot of times it was growth. Uh, you know, We, we were uh, companies that were, for instance, competitors of GoDaddy that were growing faster with much less revenue, had a higher valuation than GoDaddy because of their growth. They had a higher multiple attributed to them. So, if we are buying a business that that has a higher growth rate, for instance, than, than we do at GoDaddy, we would pay more because that would hopefully translate into us as a company getting a higher multiple too. So, um, so the dynamics there are very very nuanced, um, and that's one. One anchor point, which is your public market valuation. The other one is what other comparable transactions have done in the public markets? Like what was the multiple on those uh, or in private uh, markets? Sometimes you can get that data. Um, You also look at public company, other public company valuations. So you kind of triangulate. And there's also this traditional discounted cash flow model where uh, Every corp dev team, I believe, uses because, again, that's another um, uh, benchmark. So you kind of get all these valuations and you kind of try to see where do they converge, what range of value seems to be reasonable.
2: And, and you would present that to the business unit leader?
0: And the CFO and the CEO and ultimately the board. So they, they would want to see that. They would want to see also what does the combined financials of the business will look like how will that move our stock price ultimately? And uh, again, if that's a big enough of an acquisition, that's why you kind of, if it's tiny, you don't bring it to the board because it won't make a difference to them.
2: That's super helpful. And so it's really the corporate development people who would have the benchmarks and are are driving the bus when it comes to valuation. So for an entrepreneur uh, listening to this, what I'm taking away from you is that rather than, than make your case to a general manager or a business unit leader, you know, you should pay, I'm making this up, you know, six times EBITDA, not five times EBITDA. <laughs> you're, you're really, that's the, the strategic fit is really the business unit leader. Yes. But then when you're trying to argue for a higher multiple, you're really trying to provide the benchmarks and the comparables to the corporate development folks to make your case that you know the the actual comparable is more like x times is,
0: is that right absolutely and you know the best way to make your case as an entrepreneur of course is if you have viable alternatives if you have other acquirers or if you can stay in business without having to sell for instance with webs.com you know not only did we have other uh, public companies even wanting to acquire us we also didn't have a need to sell because we are cash flow positive so we told folks that, hey, look, unless you can provide us with a compelling offer that stops us in our tracks, we're moving forward in this direction. As an acquirer, how do you
2: decipher the legitimacy of someone's claim that they quote have multiple offers? So every entrepreneur I think listening to this has now heard, if they've listened to more than three episodes, me say like, you know, the the you know your you need to create competitive tension you've got to get multiple offers for your company to give yourself an ability to punch above your weight and i'm sure that virtually every entrepreneur you met with at goDaddy were you know said oh yeah we're talking to other people because they've heard that how did you poke that and and validate that they were actually talking to other people they actually had other offers or if they were just blowing smoke
0: yeah you know at some point it was It's irrelevant because um, we can pay what we can pay, right? So, um, of course, you know, after having done this for a number of years, you kind of develop an intuitive sense as to who's really, um, who has all the facts and who's really talking credibly versus just sort of trying to. Create a false sense of urgency or a false sense of uh, competitiveness. So, what would some of those deal? signs
2: be, Taraj? Like, what would some of those signs be if if someone said something? What, what would make your spidey sense go off and you're like, you know what? This guy's just giving me a line. There's no right. way.
0: Um, you know, one signal actually is having a, 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 a bank represent you, right? If you do have a bank, a credible bank, um, that this acquire, for instance, deals with multiple times. Um, um and you know you have a process you know you have a day de- de- uh, virtual data room uh you have other things that are like how prepared you are and whether you, the timelines that you're presenting actually make sense uh in a in a fit the pattern with other deals that actually were competitive. And sometimes, you know, when you have a bank, you actually have a multi-stage process. You, and and the bank tells uh, the acquirer, hey, look, we have X number of people in the funnel. We're going to select three people to go to the next stage. And then from them, we're going to select one person to go to the next phase, right? So it's an auction process. It's kind of, um, you don't know who the other bidders are. Sometimes we knew because we are in—it's a small industry, and and you kind of ha- have back channels. Um, and a lot of acquirers talk to each other, and uh, we knew that we would talk to people who are bidding for the same asset. Um, so um, it's uh, it comes out. Uh, ultimately, I would not lie, um, and ultimately, I feel like truth is the best approach. And what you want to do is you want to build a solid. Strong relationship because when you sell your business, there's going to be continuity, and and you want to start off on the best footing possible.
2: Yeah, and this is a key point because most of the people listening to this, there'll be some sort of transition period, earn out. You know, like they'll end up taking some shares and some private equity deals. So they they've got to. It's not like they get to ride off into the sunset and hand the keys to somebody and 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 go. There's got to be. uh, They've got to hang around for a little while, and that relationship is is going to be critical for sure. What was the most surprising thing to Raj, to you? You know, your first couple of weeks on the job at GoDaddy, you had, you had been on the other side, right? So you'd started a very successful company. Then you, then you were instrumental in selling a hundred million dollar company. Uh, and, and then you were in, on the operations side at UpCouncil. So, I mean, you had spent a lot of time building and, and selling companies, Two weeks into your role at GoDaddy, what was the like, aha, where you're like, oh my gosh, I never I never understood this about this side of the border.
0: Right. Well, one thing I really underappreciated or didn't even appreciate was how complex a decision-making process it is for an acquirer. What makes it complex? Um, there are so many stakeholders you need to satisfy. You need to kind of get the blessing from the technical teams, from the product team. You need you need them to be on board. You need the marketing team to be on board. You need the investor relations team to be on board. Legal, accounting, finance. There are all sorts of uh, folks in a, in a large organization that you need to bring along on the journey. So you need to have a very tight reason for why you want to make this acquisition. And you need to have such high level of confidence in in the target, in the management, in their leadership's ability, that when they join you, they're going to fit in, they're going to be uh, net positive, and that you know the two cultures can come come together, because this you're like uh, depending on the size, you're uh, you're pretty much buying a whole new division for 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 a company. So um, just the the inertia is for big companies not to do deals. When they actually get to do a deal, so much has to go right, and they must be so excited uh, f- to make it happen. Um, so uh, that, to me, was uh, was quite quite eye opening because as a startup entrepreneur, I was like, what's the big deal? You just have to like buy us. Well, well, why are you having so much <laughs> so much analysis behind it, right? But but the, the analysis and the diligence and the process is there so that they can actually convince so many stakeholders. Pretty much the whole company needs to get behind it.
2: Some people listening to this are deflated hearing you say that. (laughs) And they're, oh man, I thought I just had to, you know, convince a business unit leader that there was some strategic fit. And, you know, we've all heard the Cinderella stories of, you know, the CEO slammed his fist on the table or her fist on the table and said, we're going to buy this company and, you know, just do it. And, you know, and the rest happens. But what I'm hearing you say is, it's, it, is there are a lot of, of, of deal killers that, that can derail momentum. What are the biggest deal killers that you see that drive deals to fall apart?
0: Yeah. Um, Well, I think, again, this goes to the preparation uh, sort of point I had mentioned earlier. If you haven't taken the time to establish your relationship with the acquirer, that they don't have confidence in you, that they don't really truly trust you, you, you will then have to go through this long, protracted diligence phase. And I would say the number one deal killer is time so the longer diligence will have to take the the more things can go wrong right and and it, it may be completely unrelated to even your business it could be macroeconomic conditions you know a war sure. breaks out so what you want to do is to when you start the actual serious deal discussions you're like you're ready to sell you feel like you have the internal sort of will to to consider a serious acquisition offer You have to be so ready. You have to have prepared yourself. You have to have the resources, the banker, the lawyers, everyone ready to go and make that deal happen as soon as possible. So, uh, advanced preparation, building relationships. If you don't do those, they become deal killers because they translate into delays and delays are ultimately... (laughs) I've seen delays kill many deals.
2: A lot of people listening to this will be approached by private equity groups and the private equity group, you know, the, 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 basically the, the thesis is we're going to buy 60, 70, 80% of this business. We're going to roll it together with a couple of other businesses, bring some professional managers in, find some efficiencies, and then, and then sell it to a company like GoDad. What advice would you have for an entrepreneur, you know, considering a private equity type of acquisition slash investment versus uh, you know, going directly to a corporate buyer?
0: Right. Um, it's a, perhaps slightly different dynamics there. Um, you know, I would say selling to a private equity uh, acquirer still means that you're not really going public yet. Uh, you still uh, potentially have a lot of equity still locked up. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, most private equity firms want the management to be locked up and to be incented to take the company to its next phase and ultimately they will have an exit too because that's how they make money is either by taking the company public or selling it to somebody else um, so um, if you can get a direct strategic acquisition at a price that um, makes sense for you then you kind of bypass that. Um, uh, many private equity firms, of course, are fantastic in terms of turning a business and really scaling it. And then they install their own management at some point. Um, sure. so it's it's a very different dynamic. If you have the option to do both, like do that, do it that way, right? Once you see private equity firms becoming interested, also approach uh, um, uh, strategic acquirers. Now at GoDaddy, uh, the private equity firms were so active, especially in the past like three, four years where we, we ended up losing deals to PE firms um, because they would just blow us out of the water with their valuation. And then the entrepreneur, even though they wanted to work with us, they just couldn't say no to the dollars. Um, yeah,
2: PE was always traditionally you know paid lower prices but but over the last say you know 12 to 24 months with debt being so cheap they have jacked up valuations in some cases beyond what a corporate will pay of course that right. that will likely change with interest rates going up and up and up
0: that will and I wonder whether those um those deals actually will ultimately make money for those PE firms it, it remains to be yeah. seen
2: it was it was fueled with a lot of debt, right? So yeah. if the debt's less available and more costly, it'll be interesting to see. Two final questions, um, and then I'll, I'll uh, I want to talk about uh, exit path and where folks can can get it. What you know, where what do you think are the biggest mistakes? entrepreneurs make in selling their company for the first time. And I've already heard the importance of pre-existing relationships, the importance of really building a foundation with the acquirer. Uh, I've already heard your comments around the importance of preparing, making sure you've got really a, a really good, you know, data room put together. Are there any other mistakes you see entrepreneurs making as they approach
0: this for the first time? They may underestimate the amount of distraction and the amount of leadership bandwidth that a sale process takes. And so what happens is that when they get sucked into the vortex of a, of a deal, um, they may not have the management and leadership bandwidth to keep the wheels on their business going. And if a wheel falls off during uh, the sale process, well, that could either tank the deal or really reduce their leverage, negotiation leverage. Um, let's say if you have like a security breach in the middle of all uh, all your conversations with an acquirer, right? Or your profits nosedive um, just because you weren't paying attention to the business, customer support complaints go skyrocket. So you got to have enough of a leadership buffer. That when you and some of your key team members are distracted, still, the business can still go along.
2: You're you're raising retrading and the specter of retrading or the triggers of retrading when when your you know sales drop during due diligence or you have a customer breach or a, a customer concern or a security breach, et cetera. So I, I would I would put all those in the bucket of legitimate retrading, right? Like something material has changed in the business, we need to renegotiate. What Can you tell me about illegitimate retrading, which I would characterize as the acquirer choosing to drop the price in due diligence for no other reason than they think they've got the seller where they want them. And the seller has mentally checked out. They bought the car, they bought the ski house or whatever, and they've mentally checked out. Does it happen? Who does it? What's the, you know, who triggers it? Tell me more.
0: Unfortunately, it does happen. And I would say it probably happens more with um, uh, folks who are acquiring companies, not on a regular basis, but they are. Uh, and, and the reason for that is because they don't care as much about their reputation, right? Um, you know, for instance, at GoDaddy, we would encourage anyone who was in serious discussions with us to talk to other uh, founders and businesses we had acquired and kind of do a reference check on us. So we cared about our reputation. We wanted to be an acquirer of choice, not an acquirer of last resort. So um, you have folks that perhaps are not doing this uh, on a like, are not serial acquirers. Um, perhaps they they pull some shenanigans like that because they don't ultimately care about their reputation. Um, again, I wish it happened less. But I know it happens sometimes. They some acquirers, and perhaps it is just their corp dev team that gets a little bit overly um, uh, excited, wants to put a number on the table that uh, hooks uh, the the buyer, the seller, and so that they're not talking to too many other people, and so they kind of capture the deal. And then when they, they, they haven't really done much diligence and then when they do their diligence and they have to go support it and, and kind of go to the CEO or the board, then they they come back and say, look, this business, given what we know about it, is not worth the price you're saying. So, go back and see if you can get it for a better price because… What
2: percentage I, yeah. uh, would you say, like how much of a drop from the initial offer to the ultimate share purchase agreement would you say is, is common in…
0: In retraining. Um, you know I, I, I'm basically going with some anecdotal evidence rather than with statistics so I would encourage your readers to perhaps uh, uh, research this a little bit more, especially with um, brokers and bankers who have seen a lot of this happen in real time. Um, 10 20 percent I would say is not out of out of question for many deals. Um, more yeah. than that, there's a real risk that the buyer or the seller would just walk away. Um, but, but it, it kind of like the retrading, has, it has to be small enough that it doesn't eliminate the incentive to consummate the deal.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've told entrepreneurs, look, the letter of intent is the highest number you will ever see. And if all goes well and things go smashingly, they might close at that price, uh, but expect a 10 or 20% haircut and yes. and,
0: hope and for the best by the way it can go the other way so i have actually i yeah. had one deal that happened so oh, really? so right after our what term happened? sheet this was um, a company that that hit a hit a hockey stick and yeah. they were just growing gangbusters. they they just had they were at the right time perfect space um and so um without revealing much more they were just their, their revenues were just uh, ballooning. So they came back to us and said, look, we're no longer interested in selling because this business is just it's a different business than when we agreed to sell it, right? And we understood.
2: So, so it does so, go the other
0: way. So we, we, we actually price? had to increase our price significantly. There you
2: go. Good stuff. Last question, and again, I'm not suggesting that that you did any of of, of these things, but part of the uh, you know part of the nature of our show is to try to help entrepreneurs go into the sale of their company, uh, with their eyes wide open and, and kind of wise to some of the tricks and hidden gotchas that are out there. And so my question of you is, what do you think is the, is the, the gotcha, the trick, the, the swindle that acquires use that, that entrepreneurs need to know about?
0: You know, term sheets or letters of intent, they go by different, different names, are sometimes written in very simple language. It's like the purchase price is this, and this is this, and this is... Uh, there is so much hidden behind every word in those simple documents that unless you have experienced advisors, experienced corporate attorneys with M&A experience, you're not going to be able to catch all those gotchas. And um, you, may have a, you may be very excited by the big number that you see on there and, and uh, kind of jump the gun and agree to something, uh, which you then re- later on realize that uh, it was completely something else. So um, don't be fooled by the simplicity of uh, a letter of intent or a term sheet that you get from an acquirer. Check it. Check it with others that are experienced, have done many acquisitions before. Um, and that that's one of the general areas uh, I yeah. would say. Um,
2: what what sort of like what what phrases or words would you have people pay close attention to? For example, on a term sheet we've or a letter of intent we've talked a lot about the second most important number on the term sheet, which is the working capital calculation, mm-hmm. which is where some value can be gained or lost. Uh, so that's one that entrepreneurs oftentimes. Gloss over because they're focused on the headline number, the most important. What other terms would you be watchful for?
0: Yeah, even the purchase price itself, the most important number. <laughs> um, mm. You know, is it cash? Is it equity? If it's equity, what sort of handcuffs come with that equity? Is it liquid? Is it not liquid? When can you sell that uh, equity? Um, working capital definitely goes into that. Uh, can eat away at that significantly. Um, if you have earnouts. Um, so this is basically a construct by which maybe there's a valuation gap, or perhaps the acquirer doesn't believe some of the things you're saying. They say, "Look, if you can achieve X, Y, and Z, then we will give you the remaining 20 percent or 40, 50 percent of the deal." Uh, well, every word <laughs> in that earnout uh, language is critical. Uh, do you even have the resources to make sure you can? earn that earn out after the, uh, the deal consummates. Um, and um, so there's there is a lot of, I would say every term is so important. Escrow amount, how do you get uh, what's put in escrow back? Um, what are the representations and warranties? Survival period. Everything is important, I would say.
2: Such such good advice. Taraj, this has been an absolute tour de force. I've, Thrilled! I've got pages and notes, and I'm just thrilled that uh, to have the opportunity again because you've 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 been there on both sides of this. You've been the entrepreneur, and and you've been the acquirer, and that's such a rare uh, situation. And I'm so grateful for you doing this. Um, the book is called Exit Path: How to Win the Startup Endgame. You can get it on Amazon and a bunch of other places. Um, um, I'm so grateful for you doing this. If people want to reach out uh, on social media, what's the best place to do that?
0: Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. I'm grateful to you. Thank you for those uh, amazing questions. Uh, it's really made me actually think <laughs> and reflect back on, on the history. Um, so uh, yes, I have a website for the book, exitpath.net, even though I was at GoDaddy, I couldn't get the .com, uh, so .net. And... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I uh, can be reached on LinkedIn and uh, Twitter. So T Parang on LinkedIn and uh, Turaj on Twitter.
2: And we'll put all of that in the show notes at builtthesell.com. Turaj, thanks for doing this.
1: Thank you. And there you have it for today's podcast episode between John and Taraj. We hope you enjoyed today's episode with Taraj Parang. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, along with, as I'd mentioned in the intro, the definitions for some of the more technical terms referenced, go ahead and visit the episode page, which can be found over at built dot sellcom If you know someone who would be a fantastic fit right here on Built to Sell Radio, then you can actually nominate them. They can head over to -to builttosell.com slash nominate, where there you can either nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here with John Warlow on the podcast. Also, if you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel yet, we are producing some brand new content over at our YouTube channel at Built to Sell Radio. So I would highly recommend that you head over to YouTube and subscribe to our channel there. Special thanks to Dennis Labitaglia for handling the audio engineering and thank you to the entire community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To find an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, visit valuebuilder.com. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. I'm your executive producer, Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week.